this episode of the Econ Minute podcast, we again co-host with Jim Passero, publisher of the Oregon Transformation Newsletter. We are joined by Dominic Beegee, CEO of Beaverton Foods. Beaverton Foods is a maker of dozens of flavored mustards, horseradishes, and other condiments, and they employ about 80 workers, and they sell their products around the world. The company is founded by Dominic's grandmother, an Italian immigrant who began bottling and selling horseradish as a way to make a living during the Great Depression. Now, most family businesses don't survive the second generation, so let's hear how the Bee Gees have kept their business alive and independent for 88 years. If you like what you hear, please follow the Econ Minute podcast on iTunes. That's Econ Minute on iTunes, or visit Econ Minute, all one word, econminute.com. To sign up for the Oregon Transformation newsletter, send an email to jim at thirdcenturysolutions.com. That's jim at thirdcenturysolutions.com. Now we're on with the show. This is the Oregon Transformation Podcast. I'm Eric Fruits, and this is an outgrowth of the Oregon Transformation newsletter, which was started by Jim Prezero, who is also here with us. Say hi, Jim. Hello, Eric. How are you today? But you're not here really to hear us. You're here to hear Dominic Beegee. We've who, got a terrific guest today. A terrific guest, who is um, the CEO of Beaverton Foods. Now, you may say, what the heck is Beaverton Foods? Well, if you buy... Oh, Beaverton mustard or horseradish or uh, Ingelhofer mustard. See, so you probably didn't know that. Um, those are all Beaverton foods. And so we're going to talk about you know, some of the things I think are interesting about, uh, you know, how do you get by in a, a commodity business with small margins? Uh, but uh, first of all, uh, just wanted to introduce Dominic Beegee. Well, pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. So I'm going to start off. Jim doesn't know I'm going to do this. I'm going to play my favorite game called How Stupid is Business Intelligence? And that is where I look up your company on LexisNexis, <laughs> and you tell me how far off they are. Okay. Okay? Um, they tell me that your company has $18 million in sales. Yeah, we're significantly higher than that. That's what I thought. I've heard that, too. Um, it says that... Um, oh, you're the vice president, is that correct? Well, five years ago I was. Okay, so five years ago, and you are now? CEO. Yeah, you're now CEO. Yeah, I'm the okay. guy who gets blamed for everything now. Okay, and um, let's see, you have uh, 85 employees. Yeah, we actually scaled down uh, to about 70. Okay, okay. For what, because of robotics or? Yeah, uh, technology, you know, we used to have 14 people in the office. We can do it now with eight, um, a lot of, you know, efficiencies in the plant and production and, and, and things like that, yeah. So if your competitors are using Dun & Bradstreet to do intelligence on you, they will be off by a factor of anywhere from 20 to 50% on most of the major measures. Sounds like it. Yeah, okay, just checking. Uh, so uh, it wasn't that fun? I don't think Dun & Bradstreet is going to be our title sponsor. <laughs> well, I hope not because they spam call me about three or four times a Got week it. and I don't right. like them. Um, I shouldn't say that. I right. shouldn't be anti Oh, well, we'll cut that out later. No, we won't, because I'm lazy. Uh, so, um, so you sell condiments. I mean, I, yeah. I don't think I don't mean that as a pejorative. I mean, they are mustards, uh, horseradishes. You're probably most famous for what your mustards. And- really known horseradish, self-stable horseradish, and the variety of specialty mustards we have, and and we branched out into things like wasabi and other sauces, marinades, salsa dressings. Um, just about anything that's kind of high-end, unique, and novel and sort of on the cutting edge in the condiment space. Well, Dominic's uh, one of the rare businesses, the family businesses in Oregon. Are you third generation or fourth generation? Third, but I have the fourth generation in. My nephew works as well. So you're four generations in, and how did that happen? 
Well, a real concerted effort to keep it as a family business. I what mean, was it before it was a international condiment business? Well, it started by my grandmother, an Italian immigrant in Beaverton, and and uh, my dad grew up with the. You know, she was a farmer in Beaverton, nineteen twenties. Um, my dad grew up in the business, and it always was a you know nice big Italian business, and but. <laughs> In those in the thirties, Grandma believed in giving everybody a job, and so, um, but horseradish sales didn't support all the family. So Dad got us into specialty mustards and trying to compete against the European uh, imports in those days. And um, and he's done it. He garnered himself a, a reputation for that. He's actually in the Specialty Food Hall of Fame for his acumen and in- innovations. Quite a cook, huh? Well, he's just got a really good taster, and he has a really knack of ability to develop a product that people like, and it's really, that's really kind of a gift. There's not many chefs who who have a, a you know the kind of the, the gift that my dad has, and I've taken it for granted all these years. And uh, thank God he's still around helping us out. Well, and that's something else that I think kind of doesn't get recognized is, I mean, it's not just mustard and horseradish. That these your products have won awards just about every year for the past. What decade or more? Yeah, started with kind of James Beard doing an expose in mustards, and uh, he picked uh, seven of my dad's mustards out of the best twenty-eight in the country. In those, there was only twenty-eight mustards in, the, in this is like nineteen seventy-five, and that really kind of launched our reputation as being a, a specialty, a player in the specialty mustard category. But you're all, but you don't. I mean, it's, to me, it's just fascinating because you know you're sitting in this commodity space where you're making. Uh, mustards, horseradish, anyone can do it. I could walk into a, you know, Kroger or Fred Meyer and there's going to be a store brand, uh, but you distinguish yourself, it seems, by having um, award-winning products, but also product extension, where you are coming up with new flavors. Like, for example... A lot of I'm, innovations. Like, you've, you've got, like, a, a sriracha mustard now, right? jumping mm-hmm. on sriracha train. Yeah, which, absolutely. It's probably making money. Yeah. And now you, then you got the ghost pepper thing, right? Because yeah. you want to torture your hot, customers. hot and hotter is all very, very popular That's right now. Few, now does it hurt? Yeah, it, it's painful. Is it like one of those pocky chips? Have you tried one of those? No, I have not tried. I've, you know, I like I like zip, zippy zesty food, but I, I don't like the pain. I'm How not, many new products do you launch a year? Oh gosh, um, under our brands, maybe four. Uh, per year, but then when we're with our co-packers and other things we're working on, we got a hundred different R and D projects going on right now, and that's pretty continual, some sort of stage of of innovation. And then, do you do you replace old products? I mean, do you take things off? Do you rotate stuff out, or you just keep? Ex- Typically, what happens is we uh, we'll, we'll, the computer will say it's time to reorder the labels, and we'll go do an analysis and say, well, that if we reorder the labels, that's a seven-year supply of the labels. We have two customers ordering fifty cases a year, and so let's let's swap it out, and that's kind of how we we do it. But when we go to trade shows, I mean, buyers of stores come by our booth because they want to see what's new in in the world of flavor and packaging, and and that is our our reputation. So we always got to have something new every trade show we go to. In fact, I got emails from my sales team; they're all nervous for January for a big international food show because we haven't made a big announcement yet what we're what we're launching, and and I'm kind of doing it on purpose, but. Um, People and you're not going to tell us? No. Okay. So check <laughs> it. <Business laughs> <strategy. laughs> we, we can't know. What What is the international footprint of Beaverton Foods from a farm in Beaverton to today? Where are you selling your products? Well, we're in 98% of the grocery stores in the uh, United States. We do sell how, thr- throughout Canada. Now, that, how long, that takes, you don't just get to be 
uh, selling uh, condiments and get in 98% uh, of the grocery stores in the U.S. How long a period did that take? Well, we start with my grandma in the 1920s, and uh, we probably got there about 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. yeah, it was mostly West Coast, right? Up until well, yeah, the Beaver brand is primarily West Coast. My dad purchased a brand called the Ingelhofer brand back in 1980, and that really became our, our true national brand. And that's when I say national, it's really more the Ingelhofer has more... Uh, you know, penetration in more marketplaces in the United States than, than the Beaver brand, which is sort of highly regionalized to the West. And then you got some international deal, right? With the yeah, about a dozen foreign countries. It's, it's kind of sexy. It's not big in the terms of volume, but we do have... What countries? Well, start start Canada is the biggest. Uh, I got business in Mexico, Australia, a uh, little bit in the UK, working on a deal in Germany. You, know, you start the Caribbean islands, Costa Rica, Venezuela, New Zealand, Korea, Japan. So what do the Japanese think of your wasabi? Well, the Japanese like our wasabi. They actually have a real interest in our horseradish. That's, that's what I'm getting our, our response. And they like our, our mustards because have, we have the small four-ounce jars. And anybody who's been to Japan, they don't have big mega stores like, uh, well, if they do, they're six stories tall. But they don't have Costco's and Super Kmart's and Walmart's and things like that. So they like small containers because even their houses, they have small refrigerators and smaller storage area, so they love our little specialty European-style Ingelhofer mustards there, but they really have a real interest in our horseradish. So how can you, with 70 employees, be running a plant? I take it you run that plant mostly full-time out in Hillsboro? Five days a week, two shifts a day. Okay, so you're, running, you're doing that with 70 employees, plus you're in 12 countries and 40 and 98% of the grocery stores? How do you do it? How, how, do, you, how do you market your product? Yeah, you know, really, it's kind of when the, the equity guys come and call on us or the VC guys or the, you know, so you've had a lot investment of people want to buy, buy your Oh, company. yeah, every week. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it gets a little redundant. Um, yeah. It, and your, and your answer is always no. Correct. Yeah. Because we've op opted to be a lifestyle business instead of this, you know, equity, mm -hmm. get on that roller coaster. And, Kirsten, you know, and I've seen a lot of my friends sell out and they just, in my opinion, they kind of ruined the heart and soul of what, what that company was. The founders are gone and, they become nothing more than a shill, and it, and all they're trying to do is gear it up for the next wave of, of sale, and so you just you know loses its soul, and so I, I, I can't do that to my grandma. I'm, I'm I don't know. Plus, I, at this point in my working career, at 53 years old, I'm kind of unemployable. Nobody's gonna hire me because I'm unqualified to work for anybody, and I'm too opinionated. So, <laughs> I read in the Financial Times this week that only one percent of American companies, manufacturing companies, trade. So you're in the you're in that one percent. Well, I was told that family business. I got really active in family business. Mm -hmm. That only something like less than ten percent. I want to say six percent transfer from second to third generation yeah. successfully, and and it goes down. You're probably less than one percent to get to the fourth, and so mm -hmm. so there's a little bit of a uh, challenge there to try and get it to the next generation. And I'm, I'm real pleased. Well, with what's the, the family dynamic that keeps it going? What's the what, what, how does it how does it work that the number one idea in the BG family is to keep this in the family transferred from generation to generation rather than just the, the, the people, uh, the relatives outside of the business who say, hey, sell, because let's, why, why don't we all get a cut? Well, it was never just about making money. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, this was our lifestyle. I mean, some families like to camp. We like to make mustard and horseradish. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was our, our family thing. It's what we do as a family. This de defines us a, as a group. And and my grandma just had worked so hard, and you know, you can speak to any of her grandchildren and, and children. She just 
she's just one of those people that you just couldn't you couldn't sell out to her. And she just she did all the hard things back in the day when women couldn't have a bank account and women couldn't own land without a man's signature. So she just may, managed to make this thing keep it alive and keep it going. And, and my dad's made the sacrifices. You know, he, he had a vision for where the company needed to go and getting in the mustards and building distribution and what kind of things we need to go do. And he just. You know, he had a chance to sell out and uh, opted not to. He just uh, wanted his chance to, to prove his ideas, and, and he did. And, and um, I'm lucky to be in that same stage of life at this point, too, that uh, I value the, having the company as part of the family than, than having a bunch of money. So how did your grandmother, just to go way back, how did she even, what made her decide to do this, of well, all things? Beaver, they were farmers in Beaverton, and in those days Beaverton had a reputation for growing horseradish. That was one of the, the crop that grew really well in, in Beaverton, along with the other row crops, broccoli and garlic and lettuce, and they'd bring them all into, you know, the park block, or excuse me, the uh, south blocks there in, in, in Portland and take all their produce in. And But she started growing, you know, horseradish was the main crop that grew really well in in Beaverton, um, there happened to be some, you know, during the Depression, a bumper crop, things went bad, and Grandma had a whole bunch of uh, horseradish in the ground and nobody to sell it to, so she started bringing it down and trading it. She would go to the Jewish delis and, and stores and trade horseradish for flour and tomatoes and huh. and things like that. So she And that kind of encouraged her that she built up a little route, and, she, and then she started bottling, and, and uh, she became really good friends with uh, Mrs. Fred Meyer. Her name was Eve. Her, her and Eve got to be really, really good friends. And even before her and Eve combined the, the deli and the, and the hardware store, my grandma was friends with Eve. And, and there was a cadre of uh, women entrepreneurs in those days. My grandma talked a lot about them. That, again, the, it was, the culture then was that you put your man first. That's why they were Fred Meyer stores, not even Fred Meyer stores. It, that was just the culture in those days. But my grandma talked a lot about how, how sharp these women that she knew that owned restaurants and, and uh, stores. And, and so there again, I call it a subculture because nobody knows about them very much because they didn't get the press and didn't get the notoriety. But you know, women business in business in the 20s and 30s was really really kind of way under the radar screen where it's, where it's completely different now. Um, when you buy in a neighborhood like Mayfair in London and you go into the grocery store and you buy Ingelhofer and it sells for three euros, how much does Beaverton Foods? What's the who gets the cut of the three euros? What what yeah. what lands back in the bank at, at in Hillsborough? Well, what we Foods? what I what we decided year, years ago is you started getting into too many buckets. We need to make our money, and we say at FOB Freight on Board at Hillsborough, Oregon. So we have a pallet sitting on our dock. I've made my money already when somebody picks it up. I don't worry about how much the freight I do, but I don't. How much the freight is, what the you know distributor's going to make, what the store is going to make. They're they that's own their, their business. That's their business. Now I have opinions, and I try to negotiate and do deals, and sometimes we'll have promotions, and we'll negotiate margin. You take a little margin hit, and I'll take a little bit of my margin hit. See if we can lower the price and create some activity around lowering the price. You know, temporary price reductions and and things like that. But you know, we make our money FOB Hillsboro, Oregon. So I, I, I nothing goes out that off that dock unless we make a. We're allowed to make our few shekels before all the rest of the world gets its hands on it. So that's what I really protect. And when you live here in Oregon, you realize that you're inconvenient located to most of the planet. I mean, Oregon's a long ways away from most of the population, even in the United States. And so when you get it on a truck, you you better have some margin in it to get back back east and, and to other major 
population centers. So how do they get it out? Do you know? We, you mo- we mostly truck. And, and what happens typically is you get <laughs> freight brokers will take a, a pallet or two or half or you know 10,000 pounds from varying companies. They'll pull together a truck and then the, that truck will go to a transfer station in Oklahoma and, and then the product starts moving all over the place. Sometimes our, our product will hit two or three different transfer stations before it gets to its ultimate uh, place of delivery. Powell's Books is the most wonderful bookstore in the world and had this incredible reputation. But when you go to buy a book online at Powell's, it's it's $29 and there's some warehouse behind it. And you go and buy that same book at Amazon for $16 and a robot's putting it in a case. How does a small food company like yours survive so that there, so that there isn't somebody uh, selling at a grocery store uh, your product for two-thirds of what you're selling it for. Yeah, well, most of the mustard at the grocery store sells less than us. Mm-hmm. And, and the stores actually, what most consumers don't know is that most of these stores now have what they call what they market will bear, quote-unquote, pricing. And so mm-hmm. the stores, what they see, they see something that sells real well. And let's just take our beaver cream-style horseradish, one of our best-selling items. And they see people buy it. So if it's selling really good at dollar eighty nine, how's it sell at dollar ninety nine? It's selling pretty good at dollar ninety nine. Well, let's sell at two twenty nine. If it's selling really good at two twenty nine, let's see. We'll, and they keep going until then the sales start to happen, and then the the stores will come in with their private label and say, "Look, we can sell that beaver for three ninety nine, but we're going to come in at two eighty nine and take some of those sales because there's always that shopper that does the price buy." And so, but here's the secret. They buy it that one time, that store brand, and it tastes bad, so they go back and come back and buy our product. So we lose out on one sale, but because our product tastes good, and it's always got to be about taste, we never, ever lose that. My dad still to this day, we have award-winning products that sell really well, and he's always trying to improve them, and it drives me crazy. I want to throttle them sometimes. I remember once when when my kids were young, they loved Cinnamon Toast Crunch, and it's mm -hmm. not cheap. So I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go buy the store brand. I took the store brand, took the bag out, and stuck it in the Cinnamon Toast Crunch box. I'm like, these kids are heathens. They won't know the difference. My wife comes in. She goes, yeah, you got to take this back because I think there's something wrong with this cereal. It tastes different. It tastes wrong. I'm like, oh, crap. I got busted. I'm like, yeah, I bought the cheap stuff. There is so, a difference. I mean, there, there is a difference. Yeah. There is a difference. And I think that's the, you know, I think you, he, Dominic hits the point there is that you'll, you might make that one sale at the lower price, but there comes a point where you say, you know, it's not... And there's, it's not worth it. And there is, in the, in the grocery, there is that consumer It's always going to be price conscious. They're going to get their double coupons. They're going to do everything because they have to for whatever reasons, and that's how they want to shop. And that's a perfectly legitimate business strategy. But we are, beer and foods, we, we don't survive in that category. As the grocery stores are raising your price from $1.99 to $2.09 to $2.29, do you build into the contract that if you do that, then we get? No, you or, can't, or, or, can't do that. So the store is just getting more money. Exactly. And they're, and they're 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 alien potentially alienating your customer while they're making more money. And that's just that's just the way it, that grocery store yeah. business is structured. And you can go from a Safeway here in the, in the Northwest. It has one set of pricing. You go to Northern California, it'd be a different price. You go into Canada, it'd be well, of course, yeah, it's obvious, but you go to different regions of different store chains mm-hmm. and you'll see the pricing. I, I joke, I get product cheaper down in Florida than I can across the street down down at the local market two, two blocks away from my house. Okay, so. now you hit on something that's really starting to get me agitated because if you're from Oregon, you probably remember Measure 97. Measure 97 was the gross mm-hmm. receipts tax, right? And 
and all the fans of this tax on the left said, oh, well, you know, all these national companies charge the same price. You know, the price for an iPhone is the same. He'd love to use the iPhone as an example. You know, how many people, iPhones aren't even the biggest selling phones, right? Uh, but I said, well, then these people who are making this argument have obviously never bought gas where the price is different from block to block. We've never been to Starbucks where the price is different from city to city. And now here's Dominic Beegee telling us that the prices for his mustard are different from place to place. How can these people say that kind of stuff, crap, with a straight face? Well, the prices are different. That's because you don't control it, right? You must watch mainstream news. <laughs> have the, have the same fact is said seven different ways and within a couple of minutes of doing some channel flipping. So it's kind of amazing what, what we all I know is that Beaver and Foods, we charge everybody the same price. Again, FOB, yeah. Hillsborough, Oregon, same price. Whatever that is, I, I don't waver off of that. And so uh, FOB, for people who don't know, means that, that someone else is paying the freight. The right, exactly, the exactly. Yeah. So, <clears throat> and it used to be we paid all the freight back in the old days, but then too many games got played. And so I said, hey, I, we're not really in the freight business. That's not what we do. We make mustard and horseradish. That's, we ought to do that really well. And let's make sure we cover our freight, but I don't want to be in the freight. I didn't want that to be a, a, a revenue stream for us. It needs to be a cost that needs to be covered. And, and then get that way we kept – I know that we've done what we could to keep our prices down. Okay, so now that makes me really curious on how you're going to answer this because uh, I was looking around at ODOT, the Oregon Department of Transportation – came out with a report a few months ago where they were talking about congestion, especially in the Portland area. And one of the things that they hit on, you know, a lot of people worry about the commuters, but ODOT has now recognized that congestion is taking its toll on businesses, that the congestion, especially with trucking and deliveries, is uh, is making the region less competitive and that uh, companies have done pretty much all they can to deal with, with congestion. In other words, you know, if it gets congested during rush hour, you send your trucks out at night. Well, they're doing that, and there's still congestion. It, it, are you seeing impacts of congre- congestion affecting? Yeah, I mean, a little bit. Sometimes we, you know, what happens is um, nowadays everybody has these windows for showing up and windows for getting making deliveries. And so, um, you know, we sometimes, the truck would say, we want this re- order ready by Monday between 10 and noon. And so we got to have our... Our, 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 their order ready. Well, if they get there late, I got that space in my dock sitting there, and I got another couple trucks lined up, and so it messes up our system. Conversely, when our product is trying to make a delivery someplace, and it got hung up leaving leaving town or trying to get someplace, then and then these stores, these depots would fine you a hundred dollars for being late. So there's, you know, you you try to manage it the best you can, but. You, you've got... But um, you know, that being said, I've built in. I know what those costs are, and every year I take a look at my margins. And if, if I'm paying an extra X amount per year for more of these fines and fees, I just got to gotta find a place to build it into my, my overall costing structure. You've got... Uh, I take a, a, a lot of brothers and sisters, a lot of nieces and nephews. I'm Italian. I got every flavor relative you can How imagine. How many Bee Gees work uh, for you in the company? How many family members? Well, right now it's just dad, myself, and my nephew, Jeff. So you've got... 20, 30, 40 close relatives, and <laughs> yeah. something like that, 10, yeah, something like that. I stopped How many of them that. want a job, and how does the family, how does the family CEO say, you, you know, we, we're not, we're not, even though we're a family business, we're not, it's not a hobby business. Yeah. I bet when those equity firms come in, a lot of those relatives start crawling out of the woodwork and yeah. saying, cash out. 
Mm-hmm. The, uh, <laughs> you know what my dad did uh, back in 1985, he bought out his brother who was his partner. Mm-hmm. And um, my d- grandma had left, there was nine grandchildren, we all had a little share in the company. And so my dad bought out his brother, bought out all the kids, and, and just said, hey, I'm only going to bring back in one kid. And if you want to bring back in your siblings and make them your partners, that's your choice. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to force you to be a, a partner with your with your sister brothers and sisters and um he also said go to college go get some work experience come back and be able to contribute something mm-hmm. but he also said that it'll be it's always the the person that loves the business the most that will will come back in and do what it needs to do to keep it going and so how many how many kids do you have i have four is, is anybody do you have anybody identified that might be uh, following you know in your footsteps and, yeah. and run the company 25 at, years from now? At this point, I've, I've allowed the kids just to, to go out and experience the world and find something they're passionate about and uh, get good at it. And and, um, and if they think they have skills that apply to the company, and um, then great. Um, I've tried to really stay take an open mind on it and, um, and allow them to go do what they want to go do. And I, I hope one of them wants to come back. But I have my nephew that's in the business, too, so that's... It's nice that we have a fourth generation active involved and he's really passionate about it. What, what's your philosophy about core businesses? You know, when family business, core business, you grow and you have um, other sort of indirect businesses that are offered to you. Do yeah. you stick with a core business or you, do, you, do, you, do you step out? And I mean, every company, whether it's, yeah. a, whether it's a small family business or a medium-sized company or a multinational company, faces this, this sort of core mission yeah. issue. Well, it's, it's really easy, and I've seen this happen to a lot of companies. They, they get a little too... They're really good at what they do, and then they, they have to patted themselves on the back and convince themselves that they're brilliant at everything, and so mm-hmm. they go off core. We have just stuck with condiments and, mm-hmm. and just really tried to stay in, in, in that very narrow. But you know, the, inside this narrow condiment category is this huge degree of variations that we mm-hmm. come up with. So we have a tremendous amount of variety. So we have just stuck with, with condiments, and that is our core competency, and that's what we do. And now, you're also, you also, your family also owns a, a significant amount of land in Beaverton. Well, that's true, and that, that's separate from Beaverton Foods. Right. It runs separately and, and done differently and much different decision-making process than a food company. You've got a business complex at BG, BG Plaza or BG... Yeah, it's uh, Gene BG Properties. That's yes. my my dad, and it involves. And you've got, and your family's got a new venture on 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 this land. Do you want to talk about that? It's well, pretty, sure. If it's you guys pretty exciting. It, uh, it's the first major food cart park in in Beaverton on the west side. There's a small one up in Hillsdale, and a, a couple of random ones over there in, in Raleigh Hills. But uh, this is a first significant one, and uh, it's on a piece of remnant property that my grandma had originally owned and sold, and we bought it back, and it had an old pumice block building on it, and we've converted the, the building into an indoor-outdoor bar with a big deck, and we'll have 31 food carts in there, and center area for a fire pit, and a little stage for entertainment, and a grassy area for the, the tykes to go roll around in, and and um, it's about 90% done. It should be done with major construction in the middle of December, and probably open up in, in mid-January at this point, and start rolling the carts and really gotten a great tremendous so, feedback from the community and from city of Beaverton. So who had the, who in the family had the first aha idea that we've got land, food carts are blossoming. Yeah. We, we, we understand the retail business to a certain extent yeah. in our family. Who, who said, let's do this? Well, it's a kind of a combination of things. I don't know how long of podcast we have here, but it's, um, my sister had moved out to Northwest Portland. A guy started going to this place called Prost, and Prost is a German beer stube and had an outdoor deck and a, you know, a garage door that opened up. And around in the, par- in the parking lot there, it had six or seven food carts, and people could bring their food onto the deck and grab a German beer. And, 
And I go, this is really kind of nice. And I was, I've been out there at the summertime. I was there on New Year's Eve and, and people having a good time. I really like that concept. And, but it's, you know, edgy Northwest Portland and, mm-hmm. you know, it's meant for younger people and people with no kids and, or, you know, and have, and have a dog. And, um, we had this piece of property. I was really going to do it where the bourbon whiskey bar is in Beaverton. I was thinking we had enough parking lot there, but we ended up uh, leasing that out. And then we, I had that site over there, and I thought maybe we could do something with that building. And my brother and sister and I teamed up together. We walked through there. We brought the city of Beaverton in to see if that if we could do something that in that building without having to trigger off all the earthquake code and all the fire marshal codes and and uh, can we just retrofit this building to do what we want to go do and the city of Beaverton signed up for it you know gave us permission to do that and and um, kind of go going my brother at the time was working for UPS he has since quit and he's going to come in and be the general manager of the of the park and the we have a bar um there he'll run the bar and run the park and my sister uh will run the real estate and take care of the tenants and um and, uh, you know, I can still take care of Beaverton Foods and come down and have a beer once in a while. So of your 31 uh, places to be yeah. vendors? 27 um, leased out right 27 now. 27 out of 31. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, it's, really, so it's a success before you open the doors. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's really been great receipt. Yeah, very and, exciting. And, I mean, I, I live on the west side, and we talk about it all the time, that it just seems like every time I, I want to get a good, good meal, I drive to the east side. Yeah, you know, and Beaverton has recognized the city. They just got done doing their restaurant week, and we wanted to be the the ending. Mm-hmm. We wanted it to end that week, at our, but we just couldn't get open. But Beaverton recognized the city, and there's a big to-do to get more and more restaurants into, into Beaverton. And, and they see this as a catalyst gathering spot. I mean, it's a half a block off a of light rail across the street from from City Hall. Um, there's a huge uh, development going in at the old Westgate Theater site with 230 condos and a hotel and some mixed-use you know, working space. It's it's a half a block off a TV highway, so it's got all the transportation that you want to get, and, and, and indoor, outdoor, and it can be a really a catalyst so, meeting spot. So it kind of build it and they will come. I mean, one of the things, uh, the Hong Kong Cafe on the east side is considered, you know, by TripAdvisor and everybody, the best Chinese food in, in town. And they opened one in Beaverton. And it lasted, I mean, the best Chinese food in the yeah, Northwest. Yeah. And they opened it up in Beaverton, a yeah. beautiful restaurant, and what, yeah. it lasts nine months? Yeah. Um, have, are, are the culinary, are they, are they ready for, in Beaverton, ready well, for something besides yeah, uh, McDonald's I think so, because and you, uh, you see what Sherry's? The, you see what the Carly's did in downtown, Old Town Beaverton. Mm-hmm. People really like that. Kind of that downtown edge, but you bring it to the suburbs. And, mm-hmm. and there's been... Um, Several of those have come out. This whiskey bar is going over gangbusters, and you know, and they did a nice job there. I can't lunch and dinner. You have to wait in line to get lunch and dinner. How far are you from the Beaverton Round? All cross street. Cross the street. Yeah, I mean, and city hall's in the round, and we're across. The and street, those so. restaurants are doing okay. Those restaurants are all doing well. Yeah, they, Mingo's and the Thai are place. Are they upset the, at all that they might have this competition with? No, you cars? know, really, what happens, Jim, is that anybody who's in the restaurant business understands the more restaurant there is, the better synergy it is. Uh-huh. You get more people with more options, uh-huh. and so some people may come down there for sushi. It's jam packed, but at least they got something within a block or two or somewhere else they can go, and so they recognize that it all builds and uh, on each other. Having a community of restaurants is better than being a state Stand alone in a big old suburban parking lot, you know, in, in a mall. You know, those days are gone. People don't want to do that anymore. Yeah, I think everyone wants to get their own food. Mm-hmm. You know, they want to have what they want to have. That's the, you know, so like if if you go out for hamburgers, you're going to have someone in your group who says, I don't want hamburgers. Well, you I have got a food f- cart where you could go get a hamburger someone could get a burrito. Even in my own case, I got four kids. 
you know, now I was lucky I was an autocrat and then wherever we went, they ate. But in some families don't have an autocrat like me for a dad. They, you know, you're going to get a chicken, you're going to get macaroni and cheese, you're going to get a gyro, and your other kid wants sushi. Well, where do you pull that off? You're yeah. going to go to the mall? You know, you're going to go to a food court at, at the mall? Eric, you just described my house. Yeah. <laughs> Eric, uh, Dominic and I have known each other for quite a while. And uh, about four years ago, uh, my company held a political fundraiser at your house. Mm. And it's one of my favorite anecdotes because we uh, we went to, in, in the neighborhood Governor Atiyah lived, the late Governor Atiyah, who yeah. was a wonderful guy. Yeah, and great. we went to pick him up and drive him because he wasn't dri- you know he wasn't really driving at yeah. the time he was driving a little bit but so and he was a star of the fundraiser but but we picked him up and on the way you remember what you guys talked about I don't recall I remember yeah. what you talked about he talked about when he was governor he had traveled to Japan nine times and became yeah. great friends with Kikoman Oh yeah, sure, sure, so, sure, yeah, So he was trying to orchestrate the kick of it. His bright idea was, hey, to, to impress his buddy, buy Al Beaverton Foods in the Bee Gees. <laughs> yeah, remember Mr. Pennington. Yeah, yeah. so yeah, you guys, remember you now, guys yeah. so you were telling the you know the former governor, you don't know, you know, yeah, how, no, and you know that's a great thing about Vicky. He was really, really good at putting people together, and whether something came out of that or not. But I mm-hmm. bet more often than not, he put people together that something happened. He was why, really good at matching people. Why two hundred Japanese companies located in Oregon, right? Well, I would tell you that we were going to move beer and foods out of here, and somehow Vicatia heard because Reesers, Al Reesers, got a hold of my dad. He goes, "Go back to Kansas. Kansas, You'll get your land for cheap. (laughs) Pay your employees to move there." I mean, football team not much different than the Beavers. uh, Well, at least they got Kansas State, right? right? Um, And and they got pro football, and you know, but it was Vicatia got a hold of that, got a hold of my dad, and said, "Hey, we got we got an existing state Mm. revenue bond fund. We can get you a lower interest rate. Please stay in the state." Those. 80 jobs in those days, you know, were, were valuable to us and, and the farm gate. And the ripple, the economic multiplier effect, having a beer and foods in your community is, you, you know, if you're $25 million, it's a multiple of four or five. So it really has a 100 to $125 million impact. Yeah. And by the way, when the companies leave, you don't get the gross receipts tax anymore. You don't get that philanthropic spinoff. You don't get all the, the support for the local schools and roads and social services. So... This is why, you know, sometimes when I have my progressive friends around, I, I try to give them a basic economic lesson. Do they ever you can learn? Hate, well, you can hate the CEO and all the rich people who uh, get to play golf on Sundays at private golf clubs, but there is there they are a part of your your economic environment, and you better you better keep them as part of your environment as much as you would keep a, a, a rare toad in your pond down the street. You know, well, Larry it's Gatlin, all valuable. Larry Gatlin said he never he never got a paycheck signed by a poor man. Do you think we've come to the time of the podcast for the lightning the round? The lightning round? We're about 30 minutes in. You want to, you you, want to do some lightning? Well, I, I, there are some questions that I'd like to ask. Yeah, yeah. And, um, um, well, I, I one question I had for him first. I, before we go lightning. Before, yeah, before we go lightning, before we go okay. lightning yeah, the clouds are going to gather. Right. Uh, so do you think that, that things have changed uh, in the political environment? In, I'm thinking of the attitude towards business. Because I think if you talk to people, you know, we're a heavy democratically dom- mm. dominated state. And if you accuse them of being anti-business, they'll say, no, we're not anti-business. We're not anti-business at all. And, and they aren't, in a way. Instead, what they have is what I call the naughty and nice list. It's the, it's the Santa theory that if you're on the nice list, if you do things like uh, wind and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, uh, uh, biomass, yeah. whatever, you're going to get all sorts of goodies. You know, like the, the new story in the Oregonian about the scandal with the business energy tax program. But if you do something... Dirty, you know, if you sell cars, heaven forbid, or right. do something else, or I don't know where food production would be on that no, spectrum. Yeah. You're on the you're on the naughty list, and so 
they may do you know, things. I had I had Kate Brown in and did a tour uh, a couple months ago. I was smart enough to bring my seventeen year old daughter in at the time. She took she kind of a shine to her. My daughter's rather charming, and um, but and Kate, I mean, I talked to her about some of my talk about today some of the challenges and things. She had all the right answers. She was all she was perfect. Gave all our and then went back to Salem and passed a whole bunch of stuff to, to make life harder for us. And so, you know, and I'm saying, Kate, Kate, stop trying to get the big guys out of here and punish them and get all their money. Think about ninety percent of the companies in this in this state. They're less than hundred employees and are privately held family owned. You gotta that that is your core. Create create an economic budget and, and, and environment, an economic environment that caters to those, because that is your core competency in the state. It's not the Fortune five hundred and it's not a whole bunch of pump. You're not going to get a bunch of companies with a thousand people going to show up to Oregon. It's not built for that, and so you better learn how to grow what you got. Well, there's well, this running joke that every politician thinks that every business earns like fifty percent profit. That you're making fifty cents on only, the dollar. Only the tech people. I don't even know if the tech people are. Uh, you know, they just have this bizarre view of the world where you know you've got a huge chunk of businesses that are, you know, making three, five, ten cents on the dollar. Well, Democrats. Democrats and Democratic politicians, they love small business, but they don't really want to know anything about small business. And and they don't know the sacrifice that goes in behind. So by the time that a company's actually made it, let's just say they've made it, and they're getting all the press and everybody loves them, there's a lot that went way behind or a lot of sacrifices to get to that stage. And somebody, you don't have a reality show on that stuff because it's not very sexy. What would you say the general condition of, uh, I know that you've uh, recently spent some time with, Former Governor John Kitzhopper, mm. potential Governor Newt Bueller, yeah, yeah. Governor Brown. Is yeah. he, you know, what, what, where is the business uh, economic condition of Oregon? Well, I think I mean, most business you, people are, are. Would you tell a company outside of Oregon to move here? No. No, not unless you have a whole bunch of margin and you just want to go hiking on the weekends. I mean, um, no, if you're, if you're worried about, you got to have the fiscal health of your company. We were able to do it because we owned our land, we have margin built in, we built, our model is suitable for Oregon, but you can't be a commodity business and be in Oregon, and you can't have a, a bunch of employees when you live in Oregon because the housing isn't that good right now, I mean, it's too high, and so there's a, there's a lot of... A lot of things. How do you enjoy downtown these days? It's been infiltrated by, by people from all over the country who are not contributing to our, our, our community right now. So it's a real blight. Well, this came up when we were talking about what we call the son of 97 in the legislature. I, I remember asking a couple of legislators, you know, if you pass this and the flexible scheduling and the higher minimum wage, you know, what is your, what is your pitch mm-hmm. to a business to come here? Why would you tell them? That Oregon is a great place to do business. Is it because of our education system? No. Is it because of our transportation system? No. You know what? You know what do we have that's that's out there to offer that that isn't offered somewhere else? I remember when Louisiana Pacific moved from Portland to Nashville. Uh, I, I remember even the Oregonian was laughing. They're like, "Ha ha ha! What are these people going out visiting Tennessee? A bunch of hee haws. What's so special about?" Tennessee, well, a couple of people went out to Tennessee and talked to people who lived in Nashville. Well, guess what? This is back when Portland was one of the most livable cities on the planet, whatever. Everyone in Nashville thinks that Nashville's the most livable city on the planet. It's like livability isn't all that's why that. They're not, that's why they're now thinking about building a light rail in Nashville because it's so livable. And that's why we're probably going to start bringing country music to, uh, to Portland, you know, because we think that's the way we can get them to come back. I don't know. You know, it's just, it's interesting how, you know, it, 
in some places, it seems that, that business and enterprise is treated as kind of a, a garden to, to, to culture or leave alone, like wildflowers, just sprinkle them out and let them do their thing. But it seems that in a lot of states, especially on the West Coast, especially in Oregon, business and enterprise is treated more or less like a disease that needs to be managed. Is that fair, Dominic? Well, I would say, you know, in Washington County, Beaverton, Hillsborough, I think they treasure their businesses, and, and, and I think you've seen that. Um, That's why Columbia Sportswear is there. And well, yeah, and yeah, why Intel continues to, you know, put $10 billion into the area mm-hmm. because Hillsborough and the state of Oregon have figured out how to how to work together. Um, and, I, and I still, you see the Chamber of Commerce and the things that are happening out there, but and and the West Hills are are a bit of a philosophical, you know, call it call it the anybody watches the Game of Thrones. I mean, it's a big ice wall, you know, when it comes to keeping the you know the horde out from from you know from downtown Portland to to Beaverton. But um, you know, if we had the homelessness going on to the degree that was going on in, in in Portland coming out to the suburbs, which it, it's coming, it's happening. It's gonna, you're going to start to see it. Too. I think you'll see the suburbs respond a lot differently, and they're going to rely on businesses to help them out, and businesses will. When when you're bet you know you're going to better the whole community, not just um, you know keep one politician patting their resume, and, and um, it, it really has to be communal, it has to be win win for everybody. And so this this mindset in Portland where we're just going to max it all out, it's kind of like that what the market will bear pricing. We talk this is just what it seems our politicians in Portland and some of them down in Salem are going to do. We're going to tax until the market can bear it anymore. And so, but at some point when the market doesn't bear it here in Oregon, people leave or they sell out. And when they're gone, they're gone. They don't come back. There was a conversation that one of my colleagues had once, probably about a decade ago, with someone at, at City Hall. And he was saying, you know, if you increase these taxes on, on businesses, these businesses might leave the city of Portland. And the staffer said, well, good. We want that. Because then only the businesses that support our higher taxes are going to be the ones that are left. It, yeah. it, it's kind of a silly approach to things, but I think that truly is some of the thinking that's. Well, and if you go around the country and you see old communities that were used to be old steel, old industry, mm-hmm. they did not support the businesses when society was changing. And I think our society is still changing between hard industrial and this new tech. And you're seeing you don't need as many workers out there to do the high tech business. You can get a lot more done with with less. Uh, with less people and the high know, tech, the, the new high tech companies spin off a lot less workers than the uh, than the first generation. They're not lab- they're not labor companies. intensive. You right. know, they're very free people. They need so you still, but you still at the end of the day, we still have to make things. Things need to be made. It's nice to have be intellectual and come up with nice software that make beautifies and you know enhances our world, but you still need to make things. Well, I remember when I started in economic consulting and I was involved in litigation, we would have projects where we would have maybe a team of six of us go into a, a giant room, uh, almost like a conference hall size room, filled with documents, and we would have to go through many of those documents by hand, just flipping through page after page after page. Fast forward, uh, last year I worked on a a pretty big merger. Uh, I got all the documents on a hard drive, 9 million documents. I could search them. What was originally done by six people working probably 12-hour days for 10 days in a row, I could do in my office at my computer typing myself. That's phenomenal. But that's increased productivity, which means I can charge higher billing rates, which means I make more money. And those people, those other five people, can do something else that's more fun, like maybe making mustard. And that's the problem. What are those other five doing? What, what, what is the CEO of, of Beaverton Foods? How does he spend his week? 
what percentage of time do you spend managing people? What percentage oh, of time boy. thinking about new products? Yeah. Well, yeah, this has been an interesting year. It's been mostly managing people this year. Uh, we had a lot of retire retirements at Beaver Food, so it was when you have people work for you for 30 years for sake of argument, you know, you just don't replace a 30-year employee with another 30-year employee. I mean, you know, when you have a unicorn and the unicorn goes away, you don't go out to the unicorn store and replace them. So we've had to re-engineer those jobs and those tasks and bring in new people and maybe it could do 80% of that job and figure out. So there's been a lot of a lot of shuffling. So, so there's no there's no set answer to this question. No, every day is a little different. You know, I joke all the time that, that, that we've never had the same production day in the history of Beaverton Foods because we have 750 formulas and all these SKUs going all over the place. So we, there, our production days are always different. We, we need two temps, zero temps, eight temps. I mean, so our customer shows up and they have got an emergency order. You know, somebody didn't show up. They were sick. I mean, I did, so every day is a little bit different. And, and it just depends on what goes what's going on i'm lucky i got some really good people around me that uh, you know they're adults they show up to work they do their job they make their contribution and, and we're all big people and the nice thing about technology is you know as i'm sitting here i'm sure i got emails and texts from from work you can take care of things you don't have to sit in the room and look each other in the eyeballs on, on every on little every nuance issue. and so again technology has made it easier i mean i you know i don't know i mean tens of thousands of emails i go through in a month i mean it's just uh, it's amazing amount of much Information goes in between everybody. Eric, is it? I think it's time. Oh, you're feeling the lightning. I the think clouds it's time are for the lightning round. Okay. You want, you want you want to start with the lightning? Or should I, I don't even it? know what it is. So you better <laughs> okay. start. I'll bring the lightning. <laughs> uh, Dominic Beegee, CEO of Beaverton Foods. What's the one piece of advice you would give President Trump to make him a better president? I would tell him to start listening a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Just to who? anybody but himself yeah just start listening a little bit more I I mean do you think he's listening on trade issue I mean that's I mean you're obviously a a big proponent of free trade yeah I I like free trade but I also I also think he's recognized some flaws with the current with the former strategies and I I like what he's doing to to kind of tighten things up because I I see that we can't send a product into Japan with the same ingredients that we can sell into into Canada or even here in the United States so there's barriers out there that we've we've put in in, in my own uh Dijon mustard is able to come in the United States, all subsidized by France. It comes in nice and cheap. Well, the U.S. government isn't subsidizing my sales into Canada, and so there's just a lot of... What's the number one policy direction that he's taken the country that you think is better than before under President Obama? Well, I like the fact that he's challenging everybody, the notions that the United States, we're going to concede and subsidize you and try and bring you up. I think this notion that, let's just say Mexico, we're going to put all our business down to Mexico, and we're going to raise the lifestyle of the Mexicans so they stay down there and enjoy their company, your country. Well, that, that has been an abject failure. I mean, because there's, I don't know, I mean, tens of millions of illegal immigrants. About are, 12. Yeah, I mean, so that strategy of locating businesses in in, in, in Mexico, production, you know, industrial jobs down there has not worked for the average you know, Hispanic Mexican worker, and there's still that problem that exists. So the fact that he's bringing these things up and making us think about it differently, talk about it, I celebrate that. Now, do I like his style and how he goes about it? Yeah, there's obviously there could be uh, some scrutiny with how he does it, but I like the fact that we're talking about these things. You ran for the Eric. You got some lightning. I want to hear the next question. You ran for the legislature in 2006. Correct. As a Republican. Yeah. And the. Um, there are not a lot of Republicans in Washington County anymore. What, um, they're, what they're all in the closet. What kind of chance does Newt Beeler have to be? Uh, first of all, are, is he okay for you? Yeah, I like Newt a lot. Okay, so he'd be he'd be fine for you as for you and yeah. Phil Knight. Think he's okay? Well, Newt's a thoughtful guy. So I mean, you, you know, if you've spent time with him, you 
you see that he's, he's a thoughtful guy. Now, he's not exactly the greatest, the warmest bedside manner politician. Well, I, I, you know, not every politician needs to exude warmth and, uh, and, <laughs> and you know, a force of nature. I mean, we have one of those as President of the United States right now, and, and I don't know if that's always all that good. Does he does he break the thirty year losing streak? Is he going to be? Will he be governor of Oregon in, in January of uh, two thousand nineteen? Well, I, and I saw Newt this weekend, and and I told him that my observation is that it seems to me that Kate has felt so good, Governor Brown has felt so good about her. She's vacating the middle to go left, mm-hmm. and she's just left the middle wide open. So I mean, that means Newt gets to claim the middle on every issue because Kate just seems to be going as far left as she can because maybe she feels that the state's ready to go more left. I mean, that that's where she wants to go. So I like where Newt is. I like what Kate is doing, you know, Governor Brown is doing, and she's just leaving the middle wide open. It's like playing a football game, and the, the two middle linebackers on their side just cleared out and left you the middle to go take. So you might as well run the ball so, up the middle. Well, well, you know, it's interesting. I got an email from uh, Kate Brown's campaign mm-hmm. over the weekend. She had a survey. It's a three-question survey, and the, which were – Clearly, her three priorities. One was uh, anti-Trump, hating Trump. Uh, another one was climate. And uh, the other one was more or less expanding Medicaid. Those seem to be what are the three most important issues uh, for her. And, you know, unfortunately, Oregon has absolutely nothing to do with Trump because, guess what, we swung overwhelmingly for, for Hillary Clinton. We're going to not do anything to get rid of Trump. We didn't swing overwhelmingly for Hillary Clinton with 52%. For her, compared to sixty-one percent for California for Hillary, whatever, okay, whatever. Sorry, Let's sorry. not let facts Let's, get in the way. In the right? lightning round, yeah. right? no facts yeah. in the lightning round. Yeah, okay. And climate, right? You know, Oregon represents you know less than what mm-hmm. one tenth of one percent of the. We world don't have population. any heavy industry here, so. and we don't have any carbon yeah. emissions yeah. to speak of. You know, we are literally a fly speck on the windscreen of the of the world in terms of carbon emissions. We could disappear, and, and the world wouldn't even know. And yet that's the most important thing. And then the Medicaid expansion, which we've now demonstrate the fact that we have this ballot measure, is something that we simply can't afford. The real issue is it comes down to, and I've talked to Newt quite a bit, and I talked to former Governor Kitzhopper about it, and I even talked to Governor Brown about it. The dirty the dirty 800-pound gorilla in the room is that, you know, every government in the state of Oregon, 20% of its budget goes to paying for people who don't work anymore. And so this purse thing is huge and you just got to resolve it. It's a simple math problem, but it just takes some real political on both sides of the aisles to fix this Do you think Newt Beeler is tough enough to do that? Yes. Do you, do you think... Um do you think that uh, what percentage? We had a cat call here. Yes, the, we the, did. The, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Probably our listeners didn't hear that. There was a no. That he said yes, and somebody in the peanut gallery said no. Yes. So, so, and that's you know that's just sort of a voice from the Republican grassroots, right? With some distrust of New Bueller. Why well, you know? Partly, you know, the the governor's race. I think is going to be interesting because I think it's going to be closer than people right. think. Uh, the one that I think is going to be doubly interesting, and maybe not in a good way, is the legislature. You have a lot of Republicans who are vacating their seats. Newt Bueller's one of them. We've lost, what, at least? Uh, we've lost... Uh, yeah, the Democrats keep hiring him for lost, uh, a different post, don't they? Right, and then yeah. you've got you know one who's, who's definitely going to get uh, turned out pretty soon, right? You're probably looking at about four or five, maybe So six. what are the chances we get like Massachusetts, where 80% of the, the legislature's Democrat, but we start to elect Republican governors? Is that possible? Wow, sure. I think anything's possible. What percentage but, would you give Newt Biller in chances of winning? 
at this point, um, it's so early in the campaign, Jim. You've run campaigns right. too. You can't gauge a campaign uh, uh, today. You, today, but wait you got to get into you know right. August. I like to see Newt's campaign in about August. I like okay, to but, see the but message. Give me a number that, right now. I, me, I, it's I, a landing round. At this point, 50-50. 50-50. Sure, Eric. That's good. Fifty's good. good. Eric, I said there? last week I said about forty, but I could be fifty. I, I, I'm, I think Kate Brown is having um, a real tough time. Well, statewide, we know that Republicans can't get, I mean, Democrats can't get above 50% right now in recent elections, even though they run federal elections 65-70% because we all know in Oregon we hate the Republican Party. Well, the, what's really changing, though, too, is that you've got what's left of the print media right. turning against her. The Oregon Eric now runs wonderful run, editorial on the Ben Bulletin. Yeah, the Ben Bulletin, but, you know, that one's kind of predictable, but the Oregonian, who's, right. who's editorial right, yeah, page editor, is a Democrat, you know, they've run probably more than a dozen. But I think what editorial. you're going to have happening, and uh, the, the whole notion of how Trump got elected you're going to get people who haven't voted in 30, 40 years. Can you get them to actually put, you know, mark the X on it and put the stamp on the envelope and mail it in? I mean, that's the whole motivation is getting the undervote to vote. If every Republican in the state is registered, voted, we win easily. I it's think, getting Republicans just to put the yeah. check the box and mail it in. That's all they have to do. It's about a three minute effort on their part. Check the box and mail it in. It's well, that's that the question. Is I think, you know, how different is Oregon from Virginia? You know, in Virginia, right. you had this these oh, you know, a wave of Democrats who came out. You also had a lot of Republicans who, yeah. for some reason, stayed home. What's going to happen in Oregon? I mean, yeah. let's face it, Kate Brown is not the most inspiring. Well, person. she can't poll above fifty percent right now. No matter I mean, how much, we, no matter how much everybody in Oregon hates Donald Trump, you never heard can't yeah. poll above fifty percent. But people, and she wants to make that connection that she's the anti. You know that somehow Newt Miller is Donald Trump. That's a tough call. That's, that's going to be. She's going to spend a lot of money to do what? that. So. Where are, where's Beaverton Foods going to be in five years from now? Still in Hillsboro, mm-hmm. probably. And, you know, I, I'm bullish on our abilities. And um, How many countries are you going to be in? You're uh, in a dozen right now? You know, I don't think about it that way, yeah. Jim. I, I just, you know, it, it's blocking and tackling every day. We're mm-hmm. going to come up with new items. We're going to take care of the trends. People want things cleaner, new ingredients. Get the high fructose corn syrup, gluten-free, organic, GMO-free, all those things that people are talking about. People worry about nutrition, but they also want flavor. I don't know what the next sriracha is. There's a whole new flavor trend will come up in the next five years, and so. But I know that we'll be on it, and we'll have. We're How do you stay on top of those flavor trends? Well, trade shows, magazines. I mean, I, I stay on top. You, you, you know, you can watch when Subway started advertising a sriracha sandwich. I was now in the sriracha mustard business, right? And so, you know, you, you just follow some trends. Sometimes we lead. Sometimes we we tag in and follow. But Eric, are we starting to hear the music? I'm hearing a little bit. Of music. And we're hearing the music, yeah. and you know. Later, we'll have real music. But right now, we will. right now, just the two of us. Are just two of us. We want to thank. We want to thank Dominic Biji for coming in yeah. and talking to us today. It's great talking yeah. to him. Yeah, I yeah, really enjoyed the time, gentlemen. Appreciate well, it. You know, I learned something. Yeah, and you, you and I both know that prime rib of Christmas is going to have what kind of horseradish on it? It's going to have uh, beer and foods, and mine's uh, going to be creamy nice. because I, I don't like the plain. Best of luck with the best of luck with the food cards. Thank you. Good. Appreciate it. Appreciate yeah. it. And I'm not having that ghost pepper one because I already have ghost pepper chip. And <laughs> I think we are lightning out. We're lightning out. We're All lightning right. Out. Good night. Until next time.